for eight Sundays now. We've looked at a passage that begins in Colossians 3.12, and we've examined what it means to be a child of God. We've seen the clothing of a child of God, the character and the condition and the conduct. And today we come to a fitting conclusion of that section in verse 17. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Commission of God's Children. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, I will begin reading in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. You may be seated. In reading something from Nancy Lee Wolgamuth this week, or those of you may know her as Nancy Lee DeMoss, I was struck by something that she had said about how we prioritize our tasks. We live in a world of comparisons where we determine that this is better than that or that is better than this. Consumer Reports, as an example, will rate anything from kitchen appliances all the way to cars according to their set of standards. Hotels and restaurants are ranked according to the number of stars they have. And I know of at least one person here this morning who keeps a list on the computer ranking different coffee shops around the world. <laughs> I really do that. <laughs> Such rankings can be helpful. They serve a purpose. Like when we're in the store and we have to make judgments between food based on quality versus cost. In some cases... They help us to make the best use of our money. 
perhaps not throwing away something on on something that is so cheap that it fails to last, but also recognizing that the most expensive option isn't necessary either when something more inexpensive will serve the purpose. At other times, these rankings are necessary and when we need to make value judgments, like how we use our time. In those ways, those rankings are both functional and helpful. Christians, though, perhaps unintentionally, We've created our own ranking systems. Based on our theology, we have created systems to rank distinctive aspects of the Christian life. As an example, how often has anybody here been involved in a discussion determining which sins are more offensive to God? Things like murder and theft are often elevated very high, while something like little white lies are are minimized. Just yesterday, I was reading a book that I was asked to review, and the author set a hierarchy to our suffering, ranking everything from just a couple of mosquito bites to being as something really minimal, to at the extreme end, labeling inconsolable grief as the exact opposite. We even do this with our tasks and our duties by evaluating or adding a level of holiness to each. We would say that reading the Bible is more holy than reading a book. Prayer is more holy than singing a praise song, or some would say a praise song is more holy than prayer. This is not done just with tasks that are associated with worshiping the Lord. It can be done with everyday tasks that are simply just part of living Having a cup of tea may be more holy than mowing the lawn. A reading a book may be more holy than watching television. And work is more holy than rest. Or if you take my sermon from three weeks ago on John 9-4, we could say that busyness is more holy than idleness. I recognize that those examples are absurd and in some cases very extreme. But I have no doubt that as I mentioned at them, Each of us had a reaction that indeed each of us was already thinking about how they were ranked. As we come to our text this morning, looking upon the final verse of this particular passage, we see something very crucial. We see a radical verse that transforms our perspective, taking us from a self-focus and pushing us outward to look towards our God what we'll find, actually, is the verse is really not that radical at all. We read in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we take this verse as truth, and we better because it's in the word of God, it abolishes those ranking systems. We may be right to argue that certain tasks are ordained by God, like prayer, fellowship, communion, baptism. And thus, those things are far more critical to living out our Christian faith than other tasks. Certainly, we would say that reading scripture is far more important and far more crucial to our walk with the Lord than watching television. But Colossians 3.17 takes both of those tasks reading scripture and watching television, 
and sanctifies them. It sets them apart. So that no matter what we're doing, whether we're reading scripture or we're watching television, both are to be undertaken in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to be done in a way that honors and appeases him. And so with these words, the Apostle Paul has just taken every aspect of life and taken it captive to this thought. From the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the mundane to the magnificent, this verse wraps up every discipline of the Christian life. And it brings it under one single rule. All that a Christian undertakes is done under the activity, authority, and approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, you know that there were 20 rings. But only one was the center of the story. That one stood above them all. The inscription on that ring reads, One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. This one ring is far more superior, far more powerful than any of those other rings. This one ring controls all the others. In the case of the Christian life, there's not one ring. This is the one rule to rule them all. In this verse, everything in the Christian life is summed up. Even the whole law, to love God and to love others, is summed up in this verse. In Colossians 3.17. All that we do, we do for Christ. All that a Christian undertakes is done, again, under the activity, the authority, and the approval of our Lord. This is a fitting text to end our passage from Colossians 3.12 through verse 17. We have moved from not knowing Christ at all, even all the way back into verse 1 where we're told to put off all these different things and instead put on Christian behavior, we move from that, from repudiating him, to a point of him having loved us and chosen us, we see in verse 12. And now we conclude that everything we do is done in his name. This is fitting for what Paul is trying to accomplish which is reorient the church in Colossae towards their God. While the false teachers are diverting the Colossians' attention and and taking their loyalty away from Christ and, and putting it on things like the worship of angels, Paul's bringing them back to their first love, Christ. This is a Christian commission to make Christ the center of our lives. And so as we look at our text, I want you to note first the exhaustiveness of the commission. To express the totality of a follower's lifestyle, Paul writes, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. About eight years ago on our way into town where Bethany and I lived at the time, we were listening to a local commentary program on the radio. And the announcer, the host, was discussing a situation which a man had decided not to do something for a customer because it violated 
his own conscience on the issue. At one point, one of the commentators said something to the effect of, I'm okay with people having personal convictions, as long as they don't bring them into the public world. That comment sparked a discussion between the two of us. As you guys laughed, you, you got what we saw there too. We couldn't understand why would you believe something if you weren't even going to live it out. What was the purpose? But lest we think that this is a modern mentality only, I want to point out to you that there's nothing new under the sun. What Paul had to contend with in the culture here was the same thing. This was a culture, not necessarily a church, but a culture, the Roman culture of his day, that failed to connect what they believed with how they lived. It's just a product of the culture that he lived in. Many people would claim to be religious, but few would actually put that belief into practice. We see that in the life of Christ. When he finally comes and arrives and begins teaching, Essentially saying, do not be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. It creates this conflict. Because he's saying they're not being doers, and now he's calling on them to put it into practice. This also explains the structure of Paul's letters. Every single one of them. He always begins with this explanation of theology. And after having given the theology, then he goes into the application of that theology. He always follows it with an exposition of conduct. We even see that in Colossians. We saw that transition in chapter 3, where in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul outlines theology that is very specific to their own situation and circumstances. And then in verse 3, he begins this exposition of, now here's how you take that theology and put it into practice in your life. We even see that in our passage here. Beginning in verse 12, we see the theology that we are chosen by God, holy and loved. And then we see the application of what that means. Because we're holy and because we're loved by God, here's how we respond. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 17. Paul always makes that connection. And so in this case, the following verses outline conduct that is appropriate for those who are in Christ. Because our theology will always have a connection to how we live. Like Paul, Peter makes that same, same connection. That same connection between knowledge and action in First Peter. Writing, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The word of God makes it clear that belief influences behavior, that Christian doctrine determines Christian duty. And so here in our text, we see the exhaustiveness of that influence. It's first conveyed by the combination of word and deed used in our text. All that we say and do is regarded here. In Romans 15, 18, Paul has established that genuine obedience is not a matter of word or deed, but it's both. It encompasses the entirety of one's life. 
our pattern or example of this. It's, it's not some obscure figure in history. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Turn with me to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, we arrive at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there, Joanna and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, have gone to the tomb. And after the two dazzling men at the tomb ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? These ladies begin to remember what Christ has taught them, all the things that Christ has said. And so their response is to run off and go report all of this to the disciples. And it is Peter who rises first and finds that indeed the tomb is empty. All of this is occurring and, and certainly people are starting to begin that something's up. There's something different going on here. And then we come to this story on the road to Emmaus. Some of them are journeying along. They, they encounter this stranger. And though it was Jesus, they, of course, didn't recognize him. And then in verse 17 of Luke 24, we read, And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said, what things? Now look at verse 19. Look at the response and how Jesus is described. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. This is a testimony of Christ's life on earth. Not knowing that it was Christ they were speaking to, this is how they describe Christ. That he was mighty in deed and word. He was notable both for what he did and what he said. And then it says specifically before God and all the people. We know that Jesus acted in the interest of preserving a testimony for the glory of God the Father. The call here for the Colossians and for any believer, is to follow that same standard that Christ has already set. And then as if to present, prevent any confusion that may be taking place by that phrase, in word and deed, Paul adds clarity and just says, do everything, everything. There can be no doubt about what this is intended by this verse. There's no loophole for you and I to avoid responsibility. There's no fine print for us to argue. There's no but, but not in this circumstance, not with this person. Everything included everything. It includes every action, every thought, every sentence. Each is to be brought into submission to this directive. Nothing falls outside the scope of its influence. That's the exhaustive nature of the Christian's commission. All that we can and all, all that we do, all that we say, should be a testimony to the power and glory of God. 
Consider the work of Christ, mighty in work and deed. Christ offered himself to the Lord's work, to God the Father's work. What did he do? What did he accomplish? He made the invisible God visible. That's what believers are asked to do here, is to extend that work to make the invisible God visible. We have a great problem with the invisibility of God. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It makes it difficult for people to believe. And we see in the Old Testament where Israel's neighbors began to mock her and ridicule her, asking Israel, where is your God? For them, they they had their gods. Their gods were physical objects. Of course, they were nothing more than idols, we know. But their gods could be seen and held. And they're accusing Israel of having an intangible God. Today, that invisibility problem takes a different form. We live in a society that has pitted science and God against one another, though they actually complement one another. But because of that supposed dichotomy there, if something's not open to a physical examination, then it's just to be rejected. This issue of invisibility has caused John Scott Stott to ask, how then has God solved the problem of his own invisibility? And then he answers his own question. First, God made himself visible by giving us Christ. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We see that in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. But God, the only Son, has made him known. Saad goes on to say that that's, that's a wonderful truth. But then most people will say, but that was 2,000 years ago. Is there any way today in which the invisible God makes himself visible? And there is. First John 4.12. It begins, no one has ever seen God. It's precisely the same introductory statement that we just saw in John 1.18. But then it continues. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Stott summarizes, in other words, the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. It is a breathtaking claim, he says. The local church cannot evangelize proclaiming the gospel of love if it is not itself a community of love because that is how we make God known. The body of Christ is simply continuing the work of Christ to make God known, to reveal who he is in word and deed. One key difference is not being Christ. We're not God, and we need help. But he's even provided that through the work of the Holy Spirit. This regulation of verse 17 is a means to remember that work. This is what we're doing when we employ verse 17 into our lives. We're making the invisible God visible. I shared with you the story of that radio commentator from eight years ago, but you haven't gotten to hear the rest of the story. 
like the ancient culture of Paul's day, this man would have claimed to be religious, but that belief would not have infiltrated his life. And then a few years ago, God started convicting him in this area. And eventually somebody would begin to disciple this man. And the spirit began to convict him even more to the point that four weeks ago, this man resigned his position at the radio station. A position that he held for 25 years. Prior to that, he was a newscaster on TV. He's been in the same field for his entire life. But he left that position so that he could go teach at a local Christian school so that he could teach history specifically, but to teach history with the perspective of how they live out their faith. This is an example of God's commission to his children. It influences everything. It gives direction to all that we say, all that we do, and all that we are. This is behavior influenced by belief. Not only is this commission exhaustive in nature, but I want you to note, second, the essence of the commission. The essence of the commission. Notice that the encouragement here isn't merely to do everything, but it says to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The importance of the Christian commission is found in the Christ of the commission. The central aspects, the key motivator for the labor of every believer is their association with Christ. We long for the revelation of his name. We live by the reassurance of his name. And now we labor for the reputation of his name. You can do something in the name of the church or even in the name of the leaders of the church and nobody will know who you are. And if they did, they probably wouldn't care. All that matters is this Lord Jesus Christ. The most significant association we have is not only our association with fellow Christians and with the church, it is first and foremost with God the Son, Christ. He is the essence of all that we do. And so we act in the name of Christ. One commentator stipulates the name of Jesus unleashes the power of God. His name is above any name. To pray in Jesus' name is to penetrate the heart of God. It is also the litmus test of the authenticity of our prayers. When the ark of the Lord is, is brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6, David offers both burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then he blesses the people. But he does so by blessing them in the name of the Lord. The Lord's name is associated with his blessing. We see this in Psalm 118, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It is also from his name where we find our help. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The invocation of Jesus' name, though, it, it means to see the will of Christ done by the power of Christ. It's an admission of our helplessness and the need for Christ to intervene on our behalf because it comes both with his presence and his power. But this text implies something further. 
to do something in the name of Jesus isn't just a circumstance to invoke his name. It's an invitation to make his name known. That is to say, when we do something, we don't do it so that we are recognized or that we are honored. We do so that, so that Jesus, both creator and Christ, may be made known. Homer Kent is quick to point out that Jesus' name is not some sort of mantra that we say over and over with hopes that the more we say it, the more powerful it becomes, or the more we say it, the greater blessing we receive. No, rather, in everything, the believer should act as the one who bears the divine name and has the responsibility to act in a way that will not bring reproach on that name, he says. To do something in the name of Christ is to act on behalf of Christ. To state it in other words, the follower of Christ acts on behalf of Christ. Again, this is not a radical idea. Paul's already presented it. Earlier, earlier he wrote to 1 Corinthians, in, in a verse you likely know, saying, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. To do something in the name of Christ is to do Christ activities with Christ authority by Christ approval. To do something in the name of Christ is to do Christ activities with Christ authority by Christ approval. An ambassador only takes action on things that are within his scope of responsibilities. And so acting on Christ's behalf, we only engage in the work that he has delegated to us. And we do so in the same way that he would have done it himself. Additionally, we do so with his authority. We don't authorize ourselves for the Lord's work. The authority in which we act is with Christ's authority. Because he is a sovereign Lord, ruler of all things, according to the authority delegated to him by God. Jesus Christ alone means control over his dominion. And to act outside of his direction then is to usurp his authority. And finally, we do so with the approval of Christ. When we act in the name of Christ, it's not the approval of men we seek. We seek his approval. At stake is his reputation. As people who identify ourselves as followers of Christ, everything we do in word and deed is not just a reflection of ourselves. It is a reflection of him. And so what people see come from us impacts what they think about Christ. And so because it is his reputation on the line, it is Christ who gets to approve what is done in his name. To do something in the name of Christ is to undertake it as Christ would do, to act as he would act. Christ's name is not an addendum, as though we do as we please, and then say, but I do this in the name of Christ. Calder Gannett tells a story about his time at Dallas Theological Seminary, and after he had been worshiping on a Sunday morning and then fulfilled his duties, he made his way home, and his wife greeted him at the door and said, you received a phone call from one of your students. And so after returning that phone call, he showed up at the student's place of residence to find that the student was drunk. A student asked Professor Gannett to 
drive him across town to his friend's place so that he could pull himself together. On their drive across town, suddenly the student said, Brother Gannett, I want you to stop and buy me another bottle of beer. Teacher responded, I cannot buy you a bottle of beer. I will not buy you a bottle of beer. And so the student responded, In the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to buy me a bottle of beer. We should, of course, recognize that behavior is inconsistent with the name of Christ. To act in his name is a lifestyle guiding everything. We saw this in our call to worship this morning, where Micah, who's trying to appeal to the people to abandon their idolatry, to relinquish their commitment to false gods and surrender themselves to the one true God. He says, for all the peoples will walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. The essence of all that we do is Jesus Christ. And all that we do is not in our name, but his name. We may be tempted not to name Christ out of fear of rejection. Sometimes we may temporarily forget Christ in that moment. But let me tell you, for those of us who call ourselves Christians and identify ourselves with Christ, it's not important what we do. It is important what we do in the name of Christ. Why is Christ's name so crucial to what we do? I've already said that the name of Christ defines our activities. It brings us the authority. But I want to just very, very quickly mention several aspects, three texts, that tell us why his name should be the motivation of what we do. First, Galatians 3.27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into the name of Christ have put on Christ. The name of Christ calls us to remember our baptism when we submitted ourselves to the authority of Christ. Notice also John 14, 26. It says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That should call to recognition two things. The first being that it reminds us of the blessing of salvation because it is at that point that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it also reminds us of the help that we have in those moments. And finally, the name of Christ reminds us of the power given to us to undertake works in his name. Luke 10, 17, it's at this point that the 72 are returning after they've been sent out to minister. And it says they return with joy. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look at the power behind Christ's name. By invoking the name of Christ, we are reminded that we undertake everything by his authority because we agreed to submit to his authority. We are reminded that we respond because of the blessing of salvation that we received. And we recognize that this working is not our own power, but his. This is the essence of the commission, the name of Jesus Christ. I want you to know finally, as the Lord reveals this commission, 
we see that it's not without purpose or consequence, but we see the effect of that commission. Notice how the verse ends. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because last week we spent the whole message discussing thankfulness to God, discussing that genuine thankfulness is the mark of a genuine Christian. The natural outflow of being recipients of God's blessing is an attitude of gratitude in our lives. There's a parallel passage, though, that we cited last week, and I want to bring it, bring it to your attention again. Ephesians 5.20, this point's reiterated. It says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Notice how this verse expands what we just read in Colossians. While in Colossians, Paul simply gives, or simply writes, giving thanks, look at what we have here in Ephesians. He says, give thanks always. We saw this last week in the citation of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Understanding that there is no circumstance in our lives that does not warrant thanksgiving from us to our Lord. From comfort to condemnation, from thrill to tribulation, the giving of thanks to God is always appropriate because gratefulness to God is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's dependent upon his character. The result is a child of God who willingly gives thanks. Notice what else this verse says, though, in Ephesians. Giving thanks always and for everything. For everything. As silly as it sounds, there was a point in my life when every day I had to pull out into a busy street. I had to cross that street. And every time I made it across, I simply said, Thank you, Lord. I didn't do so because I was thankful for safety, but because the Lord seemed to open the door so that I could cross quickly. And I was grateful for that opportunity, that I didn't have to sit there like other people for long periods. I never had to do that. Well, there was one time <laughs> when I hit another person. <laughs> but even that, I didn't have to wait very long because the police were already there. <laughs> they had witnessed the whole thing. <laughs> There was one coming around the corner. So I got in the car after the report was written and made my way to pick up my date for senior homecoming. <laughs> it was a simple thing. And yet we're commanded to give thanks in all circumstances. And so my point is simply that it's a simple action to be cognizant of the Lord's work in our lives. We're thankful in everything, because we have much to be thankful for. Our passage in Colossians 3 gives us this. We see a multitude of reasons here for thanksgiving. In the first part of verse 12, we can be thankful for the blessing of salvation. In the second part of verse 12, it's the blessing of sanctification. In verse 13, we have the blessing of reconciliation. Verse 14, the blessing of affection. And verse 15, the blessing of placation. And in verse 16, we have the blessing of appreciation. We are without excuse, not without excuse, as the Lord has provided us with plenty of opportunities to be thankful. I just gave you seven in that with those verses alone. 
We already discussed this concept of giving thanks in general last week when we looked at the second part of verse 15 and through verse 16. So why does Paul mention it again? Why does he bring up giving thanks? He does so now in the context of serving the Lord. So what is that connection? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Our tendency when it comes to labor is to complain or grumble or question. This is too hard. Why do I have to do this? What is the Lord's purpose here? What we learn from Colossians 3.17 and even Ephesians 5.20 is that really this accomplishes nothing except a protest. Instead, what we see is that the Lord is pleased by the giving of things. Why should we be thankful for serving the Lord? Shouldn't the Lord be thankful to us that we're allowing ourselves to serve the Lord? That would be our mentality if we forget something incredibly crucial. This is an omnipotent God. He does not need us. Well, let me back up even. First off, as full-fledged sinners, in a manner of speaking, the Lord doesn't even want us. As with any job, when you apply for that job, there are specific requirements you have to meet. In this case, the Lord's not just sending out anybody. He wants people who have come to him, and he's qualified. We wouldn't send an unbeliever out to go preach the gospel, as an example. And yet at the same time of our own merit, we're not only unable to find a place in the Lord's home in heaven, but we're disqualified from service for the Lord's work on earth. And yet by Christ's work, we're qualified for that service. Were it not for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we would be unable to serve the Lord. And yet now we can The fact that we can even serve him at all warrants a response of thanksgiving. And then it goes a bit further. When we realize that the Lord is fully capable, fully functional to do anything as he pleases without our involvement. He doesn't even need us to accomplish his will. He could do that without us. And yet of his own volition... The Lord chooses to use us in his work. That should cause us to indeed praise the Lord and thank him and say, Who am I? As we sang or heard sung earlier. In doing this, the Lord has granted us this privilege of allowing us to partake in blessings that we don't deserve, that we have no right to. We get the blessing of rejoicing with people when they come through saving faith, which wasn't our work, but the work of the Spirit. We rejoice at the blessing of seeing God glorified when sinners are restored to a right relationship with him. And we get the blessing and get to experience joy when lives are transformed, when they're rescued from the severe circumstances of this world. None of this was our work but the Lord's. And yet he has allowed us to take part in that. And we get to receive the blessings associated with that. The willingness of the Lord to involve us in his work 
again warrants thanksgiving. As the Lord commissions us to do everything in his name, the result is thanksgiving. That he indeed commissioned us to do everything in his name. Thanksgiving to God through Christ is the effect of the commission. Colossians 3.17 lays out the commission of every believer to do everything for Christ. That is the essence of what we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. If you spent any time with me, you will know that I cite two passages more frequently than any other. The first is Colossians 1.28. And it's there that Paul identifies his own task in ministry, that he labors to present people perfect in Christ. This is the heart of any ministry, any ministry that we undertake for the Lord. We do so that people may not only find salvation, but sanctification, that they may be ever-growing in holiness. The second verse, though, that I cite is the one I just read, 1 Corinthians 10.31. I am convinced that everything hinges on the glory of God and that everything should be done for the glory of God. This does not mean that we're perfect, nor does it mean that we're the best at everything. But this is a call to excellence. It is a call to steward everything for the sake of his name, for his glory. What we do well, do we do well for the sake of the Lord. It is exhaustive in nature. Its essence is found in Christ. We do so in his name. And it is expressed by thanksgiving. And so what we do is for the, the work we do is for the person of Christ. We take everything captive on this principle, this principle of excellence, so that we may be recognized, not so we may be recognized, but so that Christ may be revered. But we should also be encouraged by that point. Because although this call is to excellence, and it seems to place this heavy burden on our shoulders, all that we do, we undertake in the power of Christ. To do something in the name of Christ, to do so in reliance upon him. Never again do we need to be discouraged from undertaking the Lord's work. Because it's not for our reputation, nor is it in our strength. It is by Christ, for Christ, and in Christ. Lord Al- Lloyd Algovey sums it up this way. The Christian is one whose style is reflective of the immense resources of God at work in him. His life is punctuated by exclamation point of the amazing interventions of God. He is bold and free, unafraid and courageous because he knows nothing can separate him from the source of his power. Therefore, he lives an astounding life in which the impossible happens. With the reading and exposition of this verse now, I want you to notice just something very quickly about the movement of our text from Colossians 3.12 through 3.17. We began in June looking at verse 12, and we spent three weeks there to see that we're known by God. And then all that followed was a result of that truth. 
And so in verses 13 through 16, these commands that are to be implemented then show that we know God. And finally in verse 17 here, we end by making God known. Do you see that? In verse 12, we are known by God. Verse 13 through 16, we show we know God. And in verse 17, we make God known. And we make God known by doing everything in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, what we do, we do well. Because all that we do is a means to praise him and to please him and to proclaim him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you this morning, this afternoon, indeed seeing that it is not by our will, by our word, or by our work, but it is by yours. Father, we look upon this text and and recognize that we have this overarching regulation of the Christian life. When we don't know what your will is, all we need to do is look upon this text and apply it. To do everything in the name of your Son. Father, that brings great praise to our lips. First, that we can do everything in the name of your Son. Father, that by his work on the cross, Lord, that we can indeed labor for you. But it also brings great praise because we know that it is not done in our our power, Lord. We don't need to worry about falling short because it's not us that works. It's rather you're working through us, Lord. And so, Father, on this verse, on this principle, may we submit our lives to you. May we call upon you in every circumstance, and may everything we do be done in the name of your Son, in word and in deed. And so we commit this all to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.